Hello everyone and welcome to the March 5 edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, Mnookin, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a cancer latency period analysis is required for a determination of injury AOE-COE. Here's what happened in the published case of the City of South San Francisco versus the WCAB and the City of Pacifica. Richard Johnson worked as a firefighter for the City of South San Francisco from 1973 to 2001. He then worked for the City of Pacifica. He was exposed to known carcinogens during both periods of employment. He was diagnosed with nasopharyngeal cancer in 2007 while working for the city of Pacifica, the second of the two employers. So Mr. Johnson filed a workers' compensation claim against Pacifica. He invoked the labor code presumption that cancer manifesting during employment as a firefighter arose out of and in the course of that employment. Pacifica denied liability and joined the first employer, the City of South San Francisco, as a party to the case. The City of South San Francisco eventually settled with Johnson for all of his cancer-related compensation, and it then sought contribution from the second employer, Pacifica. An arbitrator denied the petition ruling that evidence of the latency period for the cancer suffered by Johnson showed the injurious exposure occurred during Johnson's earlier employment with the city of South San Francisco. The WCAB upheld and adopted the arbitrator's order. The Court of Appeal affirmed the WCAB in the published case. The Labor Code establishes a presumption that cancer manifesting during and for a specified period following employment in a certain public safety position, including firefighters, arose out of and in the course of that employment. But the section limits liability for a cumulative injury to the employer who employed the applicant during the one year preceding the date of injury or the last day of injurious exposure to the hazards that caused the injury, whichever is earlier. The issue in this case was whether the last injurious exposure resulting in the injury occurred during the City of South San Francisco or Pacifica employment. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer is not liable absent evidence that exposure during that employment was a contributing cause of the disease or injury that the exposure was injurious. The presumption does not eliminate the requirement that an industrial injury be proximately caused by the hazardous exposure. Hence, the latency period for development of a cancer after exposure to a carcinogen must be taken into account. An OSHA citation against an employer was upheld for failure to fully complete OSHA Form 300. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Key Energy Services Incorporated versus California Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board. In 2012, a five-man crew of employees of Key Energy Services Incorporated was working on an oil rig as a large sections of tubing was being pulled out of the well hole. A wet box was being used to deflect a liquid that was coming out with the tubing in order to avoid getting crew members wet. 
A sudden release of pressure from the well tubing caused a powerful blast, which blew the wet box upward and into a tree. After the blacks, Norberto Gomez was found lying on the floor with a head wound, and he was hospitalized with a fractured skull. Kalosha requested Key Energy's Form 300 log, in which employers are required to record work-related injuries. The division then issued four citations to Key Energy, including a citation for failing to fully complete the Form 300 log entry. The Form 300 citation was based on the failure to include complete information in column F identifying the object or substance that directly injured or made the person ill. Key Energy appealed the citations to various levels, which were all denied, so they sought relief from the Court of Appeal. The employer contends that substantial evidence did not support the board's finding that it violated the regulation by not completing column F of Form 300. The Court of Appeal concluded that substantial evidence supports the finding of a violation in the unpublished and affirmed the citation. The heading of Form 300 column F states, Describe the injury or illness, parts of body affected, and objects or substances that directly injured or made the person ill. For Mr. Gomez's injury, the entry in column F read, Fractured skull, forehead. Key Energy's argument was that it is only required by the regulation to use Form 300, not fully complete it. But the Court of Appeal agreed that it would be pointless to require employees to use the Form 300, but not require them to fill it out correctly and completely. The company offered no evidence regarding the reason for its omission of information from column F. The record contains substantial evidence that Mr. Gomez was struck by the wet box. The Department of Justice announced it will be filing a statement of interest in a multi-district litigation regarding hundreds of lawsuits against opioid manufacturers and distributors. The plaintiffs include numerous cities, municipalities, and medical institutions that have borne the cost of the prescription opioid crisis. The Justice Department will primarily argue that the federal government has also borne substantial costs from the opioid epidemic and seeks reimbursement. Named in the litigation are opioid manufacturers Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, Endo International PLC, and Allergen PLC, and the three biggest drug distributors in the country, Amerisource Bergen Corporation, Cardinal Health Inc., and McKesson Corporation. The consolidated litigation pending before U.S. Just, uh, U.S. District Judge Dan Polster involves at least 355 lawsuits filed by cities, counties, and others. Polster has been pushing for a quick global settlement in the litigation and has invited state attorneys general who have cases in state courts or who are conducting a multi-state probe of the companies to participate in those talks. Its statement of interest into the litigation will allow it to eventually get a share of the final settlement the companies pay. Plaintiffs' lawyers have not quantified the potential costs involved in the case, but have compared them with the litigation by states against the tobacco industry that led to 1998's $246 billion settlement.
And now our crime report. For years, it was hard to miss the billboards and radio jingles for a weight loss surgery center that promised, let your new life begin, call 1-800-GET-THIN. But federal prosecutors alleged that the lap band surgery operation was at the center of a massive fraud scheme that forced patients to undergo unnecessary tests and cheated insurers and patients out of a quarter of a billion dollars. 49-year-old Julian Amidi of West Hollywood and 55-year-old Mirali Zabarbi of Beverly Hills were arrested for a host of criminal charges stemming from Get Thin's lap band surgery and sleep study programs. Two corporations, Surgery Center Management LLC and Independent Medical Services Incorporated, are also named in the 37-count superseding indictment that was just unsealed. The indictment contains charges of mail fraud, wire fraud, false statements, money laundering, and aggravated identity theft. Omidi, a physician whose license was revoked in 2009, controlled in part the Get Thin network of entities which focused on the promotion and performance of elective lap band weight loss surgeries. Prospective lap band patients were required to have at least one sleep study and employees were incentivized with commissions to make sure the studies occurred. The purpose of the sleep studies was to find a second reason, a comorbidity such as sleep apnea, that Get Thin would use to convince the patient's insurance company to pre-approve the lap band procedure. After patients underwent sleep studies, Get Thin employees allegedly often falsified the results to reflect that the patient had moderate or severe sleep apnea and that they suffered from severe daytime sleepiness. Those falsified sleep studies reports were used in support of Get Thin's pre-authorization request for lap band surgery. Relying on the false sleep studies as well as other false information, insurance companies authorized payment for some of the proposed lap band surgeries. The indictment alleges that Get Thin received at least $38 million for the lap band procedures. The victim health care benefit programs include TRICARE, Anthem, Blue Cross, United Healthcare, Aetna, SEGA, and others. The government seized more than $110 million in funds and securities from accounts held by individuals and entities involved in the criminal scheme described in the indictment back in 2014. The government is seeking forfeiture of some or all of those funds in the criminal case and also intends to pursue criminal forfeiture or of some or all of their assets. A medical doctor was arrested on federal charges of illegally selling prescriptions without a legitimate medical purpose to undercover operatives who visited the physician's Victorville medical office. 66-year-old Wendell Mark Street of Las Vegas was arrested at his residence by special agents with the DEA. Street was a 1981 graduate of the Medical College of Wisconsin. The 44-page accusation filed by the California Medical Board in December 2014 essentially details prescriptions written to a number of patients in violation of law or professional standards. Dr. Street surrendered his California medical license in 2016 while practicing in Victorville. The arrest is a result of a 10-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury on February 9. The indictment charges Street with five counts of illegally distributing the painkiller oxycodone 
and five counts of illegally distributing the tranquilizer Alprazolam, often sold under the brand name Xanax. Street allegedly wrote prescriptions without performing any physical examination in exchange for $200 to $300 in cash from each of two undercover investigators with the California Medical Board and an informant. A former Red Bluff City Councilman was sentenced to a five-year, eight-month suspended prison sentence and placed on probation for five years. 44-year-old Surin Patel pleaded guilty last November to workers' compensation fraud, grand theft, and two counts of public officer crime. Patel will have to serve 364 days in jail, minus 120 days of custody credits, and do 80 hours of community service and pay more than $12,500 in restitution. If he violates his parole, he faces nearly eight years in prison. A Tehima County Superior Court judge labeled Patel a thief who has shown no remorse for his crimes and imposed a suspended sentence as recommended by probation officials. Patel was originally charged with seven criminal accounts that included perjury, elder theft, and conspiracy to commit a crime. Patel had been the subject of an investigation that started in 2015 and that culminated in his July 2016 arrest in Florida. Patel did not pay taxes he owed to the city as owner of the American Best Valley Inn in Red Bluff. He was investigated for embezzlement in connection to a complaint filed by a guest at the hotel who said her credit card was charged $6,000 after she stayed there. During the investigation, the DA's office learned that Patel had not paid workers' compensation insurance and was committing welfare fraud by collecting two of his employees' benefits. And in regulatory news, California received its first royalty check on $3 billion in bonds sold to support stem cell research. But some question whether the $190,000 royalty check is enough of a return on investment to get voters okay for billions more to fund the state stem cell agency, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. The first payment came from City of Hope, a Los Angeles County-based research center, and it comes as supporters gear up for a 2020 voter initiative to fund another series of billion-dollar bond sales. The current authority to sell bonds ends in 2019. Connecticut, Maryland, New Jersey, and New York also are among the states publicly funding stem cell research, though none to the extent of California in issuing billions of dollars in bonds. Since voters approved Proposition 71 creating the agency in 2004, the California Institute has awarded nearly $2.5 billion to fund stem cell research, including infrastructure such as lab construction at Stanford University and the University of California campuses. Proposition 71 was on the November 2004 general election ballot in California as an initiated constitutional amendment. Voters approved it, and the measure has been codified as Article 35 of the California Constitution and is also known as the California Stem Cell Research and Cures Initiative. But as the original funding based on Proposition 71 is about to run out, the promoters are out with a new scheme to get another $5 billion from California taxpayers. 
The initial $3 billion in bonds were estimated to cost the state $5.5 billion to $6 billion in interest and principal over their 30-year life. And in medical news, Sorrento Therapeutics Incorporated received approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for its non-opioid painkiller patch, Stildo, which is a lidocaine topical system. Stildo is indicated for the relief of pain associated with post-herpetic neuralgia, also referred to as post-shingles pain. The company claims the new patch is a major advancement in analgesics because of its proprietary adhesion technology, demonstrating 12-hour wear with efficient lidocaine delivery, even during exercise. It was designed to solve a problem that is commonly reported with transdermal or topical patches, that is, they don't stay on. There are no opioids that are approved by the FDA to treat post-herpetic neuralgia, but the number one prescribed product, first line, is an opioid. Some now say that topical lidocaine is an important option for healthcare providers to have in their armamentum for the difficult-to-treat neuropathic pain. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's guideline of non-opioid treatments for chronic pain recognizes topical lidocaine as an alternative first-line therapy, according to recent data, more than 100 million prescriptions for lidocaine packages patches were sold in the U.S. in 2017. U.S. sales of this new drug is expected to peak at $1.1 billion in 2025. And in other industry news, according to a new California Workers' Compensation Institute study, the number of qualified medical evaluators fell 20% between 2012 and 2017. But the impact on QME accessibility was partially offset by an increase in the median number of office locations per QME, which doubled over the same period. The study also notes that after climbing steadily from 2007 through 2014, the average payment per medical legal service leveled off in 2015 and 2016, with data from the first half of 2017 suggesting the average may now be declining. The study compares data from the list of physicians certified by the state as QMEs in 2012 to the certified QME list from September 2017, identifying the number of providers, their specialties, their addresses by county, and their number of office locations. Over the last five years, 1,200 physicians discontinued their certification, either voluntarily or involuntarily, while 400 were added to the QME list. Over that same period, the median number of office locations per QME rose from 1 to 2, so despite the 20% drop in the number of certified QMEs, the total number of evaluation locations only declined 14%. Most job injury uh, claims involve musculoskeletal injuries, so orthopedists provided more than half of all medical legal services, even though they represent only one in six QMEs in both years. In contrast, one in five QMEs was a chiropractor, but they only accounted for 5.1% of medical legal services in 2012 and 6.7% in 2017. In 2012 and 2017, orthopedic surgeons, spine specialists, or chiropractors 
or mental health specialist provided more than 70% of all medical legal services. More than 85% of injured workers who requested medical legal services from one of these specialties had access to five or more QMEs in those specialties within a 30-mile radius of their home. 2007 was the first full year under a revised fee schedule that introduced new time-based billing codes for medical legal testimony and supplemental evaluations. Between 2007 and June 2017, the average amount paid for time-based supplemental evaluations more than doubled, and the average paid for time-based supplemental reports rose 162%. Despite the increases in the average amounts paid for time-based services, Average payments for medical legal services overall leveled off in 2015 and 2016 and declined in 2017. However, while the findings show that QME access varies greatly at the specialty level, they also show that independent of specialty, the availability of QMEs is proportional to the demand by geographical region. Ride-hail drivers are, by and large, untrained, self-employed workers driving their own cars on a part-time basis. They are not medical professionals. But as healthcare costs have risen and ride-hail has become more pervasive, people are increasingly relying on Uber and Lyft drivers to get them to the hospital when they need emergency care. A recent, yet-to-be-peer-reviewed study found that after Uber enters new markets, the rates of ambulance rides typically go down, meaning fewer people call professionals in favor of the cheaper option. People have always taken taxis to the hospital, but ride-hail technology makes it much easier, especially in less densely populated cities. This money-saving tactic might make sense for people in non-critical condition, but it puts ride-hail drivers in an uncomfortable position. They're forced to choose between assuming potential legal liability if something goes wrong or dealing with a sense of guilt and the fear of getting a lower rating if they decline or cancel the ride. As independent contractors, Uber and Lyft drivers can turn down any ride that makes them uncomfortable. The companies also charge riders for cleaning fees and repay drivers for the expense, though drivers say this process is a major headache that can take weeks. An Uber spokesperson stated that Uber is not a substitute for emergency professionals and people should call 911 instead. Lyft said the same thing, adding that if a driver encounters a passenger with an emergency situation, they should contact 911. But drivers say that neither Uber nor Lyft have provided them with direct guidance about what they should do when a passenger expects to be taken to the ER. And it's not just the patients who are put at risk when they opt to call a car rather than an ambulance. When drivers give rides to sick people, they're exposed to germs and the possibility of infection. One driver reported picking a patient up at the hospital whose colostomy bag broke on the way home. Another said he had to wipe down the backseat of his car after driving a woman in labor to the hospital. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. 
by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Skarin Manukian Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.